Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 8, verse 14 to 26. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened, having eyes do not see, and having ears do not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken breads did you pick up? They said to them, Twelve, and the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked them, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. You may be seated. Well, as you're being seated, uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this text. We thank you for Mark's account and, and the faithfulness in which he wrote these words down so we can understand them and look at them thousands of years later. I pray that you give us wisdom and that you give us sight, just as you've given sight to the blind man, that I pray that you would give us sight this morning. And this I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Heath. I'm part of the team at Christ City. And yes, as I get older, I look more and more like my father. Uh, and that's just a reality. You know, I used to tease my dad. He was the guy. He had big glasses, big nose, and mustache. You know those things you get at the dollar store you could put on? So we as a family would always tease my dad. We would show up to parties all wearing the, you know, glasses, nose, and mustache, and I realized I just look just like my dad. So, you know, it's that. A bit of a caveat as we get going this morning. I'm not making an exaggeration. I'm not even, you know, stretching anything or even overstating uh, this when I say that this text here, this weird kind of couplet of stories in Mark, has been instrumental in changing my life. These stories, they created a bulwark against uh, a depressive, a destructive slide into self-loathing, and and a really sad, pathetic, petrified Christian existence. Now, that's a lot of descriptive words there. This text is extremely personal to me. It's like a lightning rod. It's like a lightning rod into the very core of my heart, to the very place of my greatest pain 
and ironically the source of my greatest joy. See, this is the place where this text brings me where I doubt God's goodness in my life. This is the place that I let shame and self-loathing live and flourish. It's the place where part of me lacks understanding of key biblical principles. It's even the place where I ask, are they even good? Are they even true? In essence, this text, it showcases, kind of like some sick reality TV show, the battle, the battle of my personal agency squaring off against, you know, what I believe about God and how I submit to him, how I actually can live a fruitful Christian experience. It's like the walking dead meets family guy. So every time I read this text, it brings me back to this ground zero. They say that certain smells have memories attached to them. Like every time I smell bacon, I think of my grandfather. I don't know if any of you have experienced that, not remembering my grandfather, but, but they say that scents have the power to evoke an image in your mind, to bring you back to a place and a time. Well, this text has a certain smell to it for me, and it transports me back to a time and a place 10 years earlier, a place that is actually a lighthouse of hope for me in a very dark place. So, you can begin to understand my struggle then when I open up the preaching calendar and realize it's this text that I have to preach on today. See, I didn't choose to, choose to preach on this text. That was Jake's fault. So my struggle this morning is, what do I say? What do I say to you? What do I reveal of my deepest and darkest self to you to actually illustrate the transformative power of this text? How do I teach the amazing goodness and the truth and not make this sermon all about Heath? How can I stand before you and not cry? How can I lift Jesus high this morning and fade into the background? So bear with me. If you're new, if you're visiting, uh, you picked a good Sunday to start. Um, and I will wish, you know, issue a formal apology out of the gate. And thankfully, there's not too many people in this splattered zone, so we're all good. So this morning, we're going to look at, at three things. We're going to look at two events and one theme. So if our math is correct, two events and one theme makes three points. There we go. Perfect trifecta. Now, I have a bit of a metaphor to help us understand this, because most of you know, if, if you're not new or not visiting, that I can't really describe anything with either a story or a set of crayons or a whiteboard. I, I need at least one of those things. So I'm going to tell you a bit of a story to set the stage for us to understand. Now, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Alberta, a rural place with rural people. And in the springtime, my buddies and I, we would have this game that we would play together. We called it Huck Finn. And we would go down to the river, because I lived right beside a river. We would go down to this river, and in the springtime, we would watch the big chunks of ice, the, the big logs float by, and then for kicks and giggles, what we would do, we would see if we could jump on one of those blocks of ice. And the challenge was to see how far we could get down the river before we got stuck. Yeah. Now, most of you are millennials, maybe Gen Z. But I'm Generation X. That literally means you can, so you, to help understand, it's like we're, I'm a generation of feral children. 
That's what it is. So, so what we would do is we'd ride these ice flows literally for hours down the river. You know, okay, you're 16 and you're not really thinking ahead, clearly, right? And you would ride down and inevitably you would get stuck. So the challenge was for those like four or five of us that did this to see who could get the furthest. And the one that got stuck first, he would have to walk back and get the car to pick us all up. So what would happen is you would ride the ice flows and then tell, usually it was this one bridge. And we'd all get stuck at this one bridge because what happens is the bridge was low, the river was high, and these chunks of ice would coalesce with boulders, rocks, trees, bushes, small-sized farm animals, and we would get stuck there. We would get stuck there. So you can imagine that this was a very stupid and extremely dangerous game. But the point is this. The water wants to flow downriver right? The water wants to go, but, but you have obstructions that stop the flow, and, either, and, it, and it builds up, and it kind of acts like a dam. But, so what happens is, if you don't deal with the obstructions, damage occurs, and sometimes death. See, the story that Mark gives for us here in his gospel, his account of Jesus, is a little bit like spring runoff. Mark wants us he wants us to answer. He wants to tell us the question, who is Jesus? He wants for us to go for a ride down the river. He wants us to be swept up in this glorious story of power and transformation. But there are some deadly obstructions in the river. And he wants us to see those and to deal with those. He wants us to not be hindered or obscured. So, so as he's answering, asking this question, who is Jesus? There are three main obstructions that Mark gives for us in not only our text this morning, but in the whole book as a whole. One is the crowd. One is the crowd. The crowd is a huge obstruction. The second is, is Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders. And Jake and Daniel have done an amazing job of articulating those kind of obstructions. This morning, the third one is the ice flow, ice jam under the bridge of the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. The disciples' lack of clarity is the ice flow that's stuck this morning. And this is the obstruction that we will look at today. Who would have thought you'd take a redneck entertainment fun time and make it into a sermon illustration? But here we go. Mark chapter 8, verses 13. So the, the verse right before our text this morning says this. And he, Jesus, left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. So, to set the stage in, in Mark chapter 8 previously, what we've got is Jesus miraculously feeding 4,000 people. He is then accosted by a bunch of Pharisees, religious leaders, if you don't know what that word means. And, and, and these Pharisees, these leaders are like, hey, hey, dude, can you give us a sign to let us know that you're actually from heaven? And Jesus was like, no, I'm not going to give you a sign. Like, hello, didn't you just see what happened? So they get into the boat. They get into the sea bus, and they go to the other side of the inlet, and they forgot to bring bread. And so they're yammering amongst themselves and they're going, oh man, it's kind of stupid. Like, oh, we forgot bread. Like, we're gonna, I'm really hungry. And they're probably hangry. How many of us have been hangry? Yeah, okay, good. There's a few of us. And, and you know what it's like when you get hungry. And so they're probably talking all about that. And Jesus knows all of this and he interjects with this kind of weird and cryptic kind of one-off warning statement. It's like, it's like, it's right there. And he says this, and Jesus, he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, can you imagine the awkward silence in the boat? These guys are attempting to figure out bread logistics. 
And they're confronted with this weird cryptic warning about bread-making practices of Pharisees and Herod. Herod is like the local ruler of the area. They're, they're probably like, what the heck does this mean? Well, we need to pause here and explain this because I think we have some good idea what, what Jesus is meaning here. Now, the word for leaven or yeast, the Greek word here is zimi. And how many of us, how many of us over the, the pandemic made sourdough bread? How many of us gained 10 pounds, you know, making sourdough bread? Oh, come on, be honest. You know, what's with, when we're making sourdough bread, what do you got to do? You got to feed the starter. And it's like this never-ending cycle of adding flour and water so this thing is still alive and it's bubbling in your fridge. Zimi is the sourdough that's been bubbling fresh and it's active. And what happens is when you take that bubbling and fresh active culture and you plop it into some flour, water, and salt, within hours, that zimi has permeated through the entire dough and you get the beautiful bubbles in your sourdough. Well, the problem is, is we think that in a positive sense. Well, Jesus is actually using this as a negative sense. And he's saying, look, just like the bubbling of a sourdough starter, yeah, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and Herod, their bubbling leads to a hard and cynical heart. Beware. Don't let them take root in your, in your mix. Root that out. Do not let that, that culture bubble underneath. So upon hearing the warning, you know, the disciples, okay, I don't know, that's weird, and, and, they, they, and they start continued to talk about the food. Now, I'm sure Jesus is probably really exacerbated. He's just plopped something extremely profound in their laps, and they're still talking about bread. And Jesus says, why, in, in verse 17, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Like, hello. And he launches into a series of questions that get to the heart of the matter here. Jesus says, do you, in verse 17, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Now, I'm old school, so I still look at Instagram periodically. And there's a meme that always, it, it seems to have a never-ending life. And you know, you know the meme, it's a picture of an old school Batman slapping Robin. This is like this meme here. Jesus is like Batman. It's like, come on, guys. And to make his point, in verse 19, he says, look, are you that dim-witted? Are you that dull? He says, when I broke the five loaves, verse 19, for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And I could hear. And they said to him, <clears throat> 12. And for the seven, for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And the, this exchange ends with Jesus repeating to them the same question from the beginning. Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Now, I'm not sure how long it was to cross this Sea of Galilee. But after this exchange, that was probably a pretty awkward and silent journey. So here, in event number one, Mark wants us to ask the questions. What were the disciples to have perceived or understood? What were they to have seen? What were they to have heard? What were they supposed to have remembered? What does the author, Mark here, want us not to miss? What are we to see? Well, it's a very 
straightforward and blunt way of saying Jesus is accusing his disciples of being pretty dim-witted. I had a few other things in here, but dim-witted seems the more appropriate term. The focus here is not really, though, on the dullness or the dim-wittedness of the disciples in general. They weren't stupid. But rather, what were they dim-witted or stupid about? See, the disciples failed in this moment, at this time, to understand that all the miracles they saw, all the things that they heard, all the stuff that they interact with, all the things, all of those things that they pointed to Jesus and who he really was. And this serves as a warning for us today. The failure of their understanding of who Jesus was put them at risk of being susceptible to the leaven of the Pharisees, the zimi, the, fluff, the fluffy stuff of the Pharisees that, that actually led to a hardened heart. And by default, it put them on a path to actually being one of the crowd, which is worse than that. Now, back to my feral child experience. This lack of understanding was the ice blockage in the river for the disciples. The leaven of the Pharisees are the trees and the boulders that interact with the, with the ice blocks to actually stop the river from flowing and results in this, this little reduced trickle through on the other side. Event number one here highlights for us and to the disciples the fact that they failed to recognize that Jesus was the Son of God. That he was the one who would usher in a time of fulfillment, the kingdom of God. It is stated in Mark chapter 1. And so that brings us to point number two in event number two. So here we have a change of scene. Jesus uh, and the disciples, they've, they've made it across the lake. You know, they're probably, they're like, Two cats sitting on other, other sides of the thing, scowling at each other. Well, maybe not. But they've crossed the lake. They've come to this town of Bethsaida, and they're met by a group of people. Apparently, the news of Jesus and his miraculous exploits have, have preceded him, and they've come to meet him. And, and here, they bring this guy who is blind, and they're bringing him so Jesus can heal him. So he, Jesus can touch him and restore his sight. So, taking the, the man by the hand, Jesus actually leads him out of the town, and, and Jesus lays his hands on him, and he <sighs> spits in his eyes. Now, I'm not sure the medicinal properties of Jesus' saliva, but Jesus then asks the man a question in verse 23. He asks, do you see anything? Do you see anything? And the blind man responds in verse 24. He says, he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. They look like trees walking. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, is this man still blind? Question, you can answer. Is this man still blind? No. But can he see? No. Not really. His vision is obscured. He sees people as trees walking. Very interesting metaphor. We can't really say that this man is healed, can we? But we can't really say that he's still blind either. So we've got this weird semi-sight state. It's an in-between thing. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave him here. And in verse 25, we read, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, the story ends with Jesus telling this dude to go home without even entering the village. Right out of the gate, we recognize that this is not a normal healing that Jesus does. This is not normative. In fact, the obvious question here is, 
is Jesus somehow deficient here? Is he like, does he need a do-over to kind of fix what he didn't get right the first time? Well, the obvious answer is no, okay? Jesus' healing power here is not in question. Not in question at all. This healing is very unique. And interestingly enough, it's the only place describing a two-stage process of healing. And it's also the only place where Jesus asks a question of the person being healed rather than declaring him clean, healed, or made new. It's very, very interesting. See, this healing, this event number two, is meant to tell us something. It's, it's, it's a, it functions somewhat like a parable, like a teach of, you know, story. It's to illustrate that this healing was meant to convey something very specific, not to those present, to the disciples, but rather for us as well, centuries later, reading this t- text. This healing illustrates the lesson started in the boat. This healing is a physical example, a lesson to illuminate the disciples and their lack of understanding of who Jesus is. And this is the theme that binds these two stories together. And that culminates in our third point. The theme that will become evident in Peter's declaration in the text right after this that Jake will speak about next week. The theme that binds is our third point. Now you're probably wondering, okay, Heath, nothing too profound there. How did this collection of stories save your life? Are you just as dim-witted as the disciples? Well, the answer to that one is probably yes, but that's okay. Now, whether you call yourself a Christian here or not today, all of you at some point in your life will be confronted by the question of who is Jesus. But if you're a Christian, and if you've been a Christian for quite some time, at some point, you begin to wonder, you begin to ponder, oh, Is this all that there is? Now, whether it's a time of difficulty, uh, disappointment, hardship, a loss of a job, a family member is dying. I just had a a family member give birth to a stillborn baby. And in those moments, you're tempted to go, is this all that there is in the Christian experience? Is this all that there is to my faith? We all have to grapple with that question sooner or later. So some time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I was active in full-time ministry in Greece. I was fully engaged in telling people about Jesus. I believed in Jesus. I had worked for a ref- an organization that helped refugees for three years. Ironically, which I was almost fired from, but that's another story. Uh, but at this point, I was planting a church in a crazy left-wing neighborhood. And I saw God work in crazy and miraculous ways. People's lives literally being changed on the daily. Yet I felt dead inside. It was a weird disconnect, to be honest. I felt I was doing all the right things. I was praying, I was reading my Bible, I was just doing the things. I was following Jesus around and I was soaking up all the right teaching, all the right methodology. I was caring for those around me. Yet deep down, I felt like a fraud. In my self-loathing and in my shame, I began to wonder, is this all that there is? Is this what I have to look forward to the rest of my life? There's got to be something more than this. And I would pray, and I would pray, and I would pray. I would see doing miraculous things around me, and all I heard from God was flipping crickets. Nothing. Christ City, I lacked 
clarity in that moment. I had no hope. I struggled to find joy. My malaise, if it could be described, it was a spiritual depression. And I knew something drastic was wrong, and I couldn't put to words what it was. And like any other depression, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't pull myself out of it. Now, there came a point when I found a book uh, by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's an old-timey kind of like preacher from the middle of the last century. And he was from the UK. He was a medical doctor that turned preacher. I don't know. And he had this book of us. It's a collection of 22 sermons that he preached in the late 50s, early 60s. And it's t- the title of this sermon series, and it's made into a book. It's called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes, and Its Cure. I read the first chapter, and I thought, ah, same old, antiquated, boring crap. I've heard this before. I know this. This is useless to me. Oh, but in chapter two, (laughs) Martin Lloyd-Jones hit me over the head with this text. See, I realized as I read that book, as, as, as he articulated and brought out truths from this book, that holy crap, I was just like the disciples. I was looking and not seeing. I thought that I was listening, but in reality, I was not hearing at all. I filled my head with so much stuff, yet nothing, no understanding actually permeated, and it was nothing. The leaven of the, bre- of the, of the Pharisees and of Herod, oh, it was active in my heart. It changed my heart into a brick. I was the obstruction. I was the ice chunk stuck in the bridge. I was the blind man not fully healed. And I had, I had let Jesus spit into my eyes. And I walked away saying, thanks God, I got it from here. I'm good, all good. Oh, as I read his commentary on this text, a gnawing realization hit me. I knew that my problems were threefold. The first was, I really, I lacked a clear understanding of the gospel. Never really accepting and applying it to actually certain parts of my heart. Something's great, no problem, but the deepest, darkest places, oh no. What I did was I used gospel spray paint to cover up the garbage and the rust underneath. The second thing I realized was that my heart was not fully engaged because it was a brick. I was triaged, or so I thought, but I was thinking that I was all well. I was, I was like gaping wound thinking, yep, okay, good. You, you put a band-aid on it. I'm going to walk out now and enter in life as if it's regular. No, I, I wasn't motivated. My, my heart, it wasn't changed. Instead of hope and instead of joy, I operated out of a sense of duty and a sense of utility. Let me tell you, that is not a cool place to be at. And lastly, I realized that my will was divided. And this is the most killer of them all. I was unwilling and unable to deal with and surrender the deepest, darkest parts of myself. (laughs) I was unwilling to surrender those to Jesus. I never really, in certain areas of my life, accepted the teaching and the authority of Scripture in key aspects of my life. And that was pertaining. Think about this. I'm being asked to submit 
while I lived in an ultra-left-wing anarchist neighborhood through basically personal agency was the prime thing that motivated them. And I'm being asked to surrender my own will. I'm asked to surrender my personal agency. See, I wanted the benefits of Jesus, but I still wanted to be the master of my own domain. How many of us are here? You don't have to raise your hand. But in reality, you see, I had neither. And I was enslaved. See, those things in my life left me walking around, left me doing ministry like a blind man, seeing people as trees. I was corrupted by the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second. And I know some of you are in that place right here, right now. So if that's you this morning, you need to know you don't have to be afraid. There's no judgment. There's mercy. You do not have to go on pretending. See, this text this morning is a reminder for me of how my life has changed, but it's also a reminder to you that Jesus is calling out to you and he's asking you, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see, Christ City? So as for me, the cure, the cure for us this morning is, is simple, but it's not simplistic. It begins with the simple acknowledgement that not all things are okay in the state of Denmark. See, we have to be honest before God of where we're at. We have to say, we have to answer when God calls us, I see trees, I see men as trees walking. We have to answer there. We have to know that it's, it's, not, it's not okay that we just see that. And the second thing we need to do is, to, we need to avoid making the weird and absolute claim that, yep, our blindness is cured, because it's not. This is not a fake it till you make it scenario. Thirdly, oh, this is the one that is hard. This is the one that I'm tempted to ignore every day. We have to avoid feeling hopeless. We need to kill the idea in our minds that it doesn't get any better than this and that there's no point in going on. Because it's not true. It's not true. We must root out that feeling that we can settle for semi-sight. I know this to be true. I'm 10 years beyond this events, and I don't struggle where I struggled before. I don't. I don't. Fourth thing we must do is we... <laughs> must surrender ourselves to Jesus fully. We must not be content with just spittle in our eyes. We must, in an intimate way, allow Jesus to reach up, to grab us by our face, to touch our eyes again, and say, be healed. And lastly, when we can truly see, we can stand in the promises given to us. And this instills a hope in us, resulting in joy. I've always struggled with hope and joy. And a few, couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a guy on the downtown east side, and I'm like, I asked him, like, why do you want to get to know me? We're vastly different people. And he looked at me, he leaned in close and looked into my eyes and he says, Heath, you, you exhibit an aura of joy and it's infectious and I want to be around you. 
I, I didn't know that. I didn't see that in my own life. Christ City, we can be made new. We can have a hope and we can have joy when we didn't think it was possible. Now, a little bit of a spoiler alert here. If you do a careful read of Mark, which you should do this afternoon, you will see that the disciples never really saw Jesus or understood, understood rather who he really was until the events of Easter. In, think about this. In Jesus' darkest hour, the hearts of the religious leaders became so hardened that they arrested him. The crowds mocked him ruthlessly and called for his execution. And these very disciples, whom he's trying to say, look at me, who am I? These same disciples abandoned him in his darkest hour. And the irony upon ironies, and when I read it the other day, I laughed out loud. The irony upon ironies is that the one charged to make sure that Jesus' execution was actually followed through upon, a centurion, he was the first one to actually see Jesus for who he was. Turn with me to the end of Mark, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. This, is, this blows my mind. I, I, don't, I don't know why I never saw this before. So verse 33 in chapter 15, Mark says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's like midday. It's like dark. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran out and filled a sponge with sour wine, putting it on a reed, and he gave it to him to drink, saying, hey, wait, let, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. He, he's being mocked at the end. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And here we are. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, oh, truly, this man was the son of God. Christ said, this gives me profound hope. Profound hope. See, we live our lives after these events. We do not have to walk out of here blinded and dim-witted, deaf, not being able to see, not being corrupted by the leaven of the Pharisees. We can walk out here fully restored. Christ City, once confronted with my blindness, I knelt on a floor in a workshop in a basement in Greece, and I repented. I asked God to heal me. I asked him to restore my sight. I asked for hope and a joy that I didn't have. And I surrendered all the areas of my life that were still under my control. All the areas where I thought the gospel had no power to touch or to heal. Or I didn't want him to heal. I confessed all the areas in which I was resigned to failure. I gave him all of my shame. All of my garbage, I gave it to him. But most importantly, I surrendered my will to him. Finally seeing that it was my autonomy, that was the thing that was keeping me in bondage. Christ said, Jesus came to me. 
And in a profound way, he made me whole. He gave me the capacity to walk in newness of life. My life's not perfect, but I, and I still struggle with so much things, so much stuff, but I'm no longer blind, Christ City. My sight is no longer obstructed. I walk with a newness of hope and a joy that only Jesus can give. So Christ City, you too can walk in newness of life. All you have to do is let Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, touch your lives and restore you. Now, it doesn't matter if you've met Jesus before. It doesn't matter if you've walked in here not knowing and not seeing or whether you're struggling in darkness right now. If you want to be made new, and because Jake's not here, <laughs> I'm going to pause and I'm going to go on a limb. And we're going to provide some space for you at the back. And as the band comes up, if you want this healing from Jesus, if you want to be made new, then head back. Head back, receive some prayer, walk in newness of life. Do not, if I don't give you the opportunity, as I had to stumble through with my, by myself, if I don't give you the opportunity, then shame on me. So if you feel as though you need healing today, walk to the back and receive prayer. Because you no longer have to walk in blindness. We don't have to see men as trees walking. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are gracious and you are compassionate and you are abounding in love. We thank you that you can make us new. We thank you that you had patience with your disciples, that you, you walked with them in their stupidity and their obstructions to not see you. Lord, we thank you. So Lord, we ask that you would heal us, that you would not have us continue to walk with those things. So Lord, we surrender ourselves to you this morning. This I pray. Amen.